This message comes from NPR sponsor Jobs Ohio. Ohio's business-friendly climate and people-friendly quality of life make it an ideal environment for new and growing businesses to thrive. Visit ohioisforleaders.com to learn more. Hey, it's Guy here. And before we start this brand new episode of How I Built This, I just wanted to let you know that we started a regular video conversation every week with different founders to talk about the creative ways that they're building resiliency in the midst of this crisis. Last week, I talked to six incredible chefs from Daniel Hume of 11 Madison Park to Alice Waters of Chez Panisse and Jose Andres, who's been donating meals through his nonprofit World Central Kitchen. You can join the conversation and ask your questions by going to Facebook.com slash how I built this and you don't need a Facebook account to watch. This week, I'll be talking to Tim Brown and Joey Zwillinger, the founders of Allbirds, and also to Stuart Butterfield, the founder of Slack. You can join me on Wednesday and Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific by going to facebook.com slash how I built this. And I hope to see you there. I was sitting in my hotel room in Singapore, and I was I was testing out one of the prototype builds, and the radio range was not good at all. It was supposed to have a range... What, 10, 10 feet or well, 15 That feet? was the hope, that it would have 15 to 20 feet range, but the range was actually like two inches. Oh, God. <laughs> We've got to ship this holiday season. Like, I've got tens of thousands of these people waiting, Oof. and I'm thinking, wow, this is it. We're done. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how the Nintendo Wii inspired James Park to build a device and then a company that would have a huge and lasting influence on the health and fitness industry, Fitbit. So it's taken me a few weeks to get motivated about exercise. This whole pandemic thing just had me in a state of anxiety and it messed with my routine. But I was inspired to jump back into it about two weeks ago after watching my 11-year-old proudly announce his daily step count recorded on his Fitbit. Now, fitness isn't all that important to him. He's 11. But the gamification of fitness, the idea that it could be fun to hit 5,000 or 10,000 steps a day, that's what matters. This is the stroke of insight James Park had soon after he stood in line at a Best Buy in San Francisco to buy the brand new video game system called Nintendo Wii. And you'll hear James explain the story a bit later, but what he realized by playing the Wii is that you could actually change human behavior around exercise if you turned it into a game. And the thing is, up until James Park and his co-founder Eric Friedman founded Fitbit in 2007, there really weren't any digital fitness trackers that were designed that way. It took a few years for James and Eric to gain traction, but by 2010, 2011, Fitbit took off. At one point, their fitness devices accounted for nearly 70% of the market. And by 2015, the company was valued at more than $10 billion. But that same year, the Apple Watch was released, and Fitbit and its market share got hammered. When I spoke to James Park a few days ago, he was in San Francisco living in an Airbnb. I'm in a temporary Airbnb because my uh, the place that I typically live in has been flooded out by a malfunctioning washing machine. I woke up at it 1 a.m. In the middle of this whole thing, you had a flooded washing machine? What, like you woke up in yeah, the middle I, of the night and there was water everywhere? I know. Amazing timing. Yeah, I woke up at 1 a.m. and I just woke up to the sound of water gushing everywhere. Um, oh. It was coming through the ceiling. Oh. Uh, it, it was a massive flood. Okay, so on top of sheltering in place and running his company remotely, James had to move out of his apartment in the middle of the night and then set up the microphone and gear we sent him for this interview. He started to tell us about his parents, who emigrated from Korea when James was four. Back in Korea, his dad had been an electrical engineer and his mom was a nurse. But as with many immigrants, they had a hard time getting those same jobs in the U.S. So instead, his parents became small business owners. The, the first conscious memory I have is my parents actually owned a wig shop in downtown Cleveland. <laughs> wow. Yeah, how did, that, how did they get into that? It was, just, it was just a way to kind of earn a living? Yeah, I think a way to earn a living. And 
uh, you know, the typical immigrant story is you have friends who live in, you know, the country that you're immigrating to. And I think my dad had a friend who worked in wig wholesaling. So that's where he started huh. out. They were selling wigs to people who live in downtown Cleveland, African-Americans, mostly women. And I remember my mom, she'd spend a lot of time just looking through black fashion magazines, styling hair, beating them, et cetera. So wow. They had a wig shop, dry cleaners, a fish market. At one point, we moved to Atlanta, and they ran an ice cream shop there. We sold track suits, starter jackets, fitted baseball caps, you know, thick gold chains. Sort of hip-hop urban wear, right? Like yeah, FUBU yeah, and, yeah, and stuff like yep, that. Yeah, they sold FUBU jeans. Yep, I remember that. And they could switch from one genre or one type of business to another and really not skip a beat. Yeah. And were your parents, did they expect you to perform well at school? Was that just a given? You know, I think they had incredibly high expectations. And as a kid, I think I remember my mom telling me when I was pretty young, I don't know, five, six, seven, that she expected me to go to Harvard. So wow, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I quite knew what that meant back then. But you could tell that uh, their expectations were pretty high from from the very beginning. James did, in fact, meet his mom's expectations. He did go to Harvard. He put in three years studying computer science. But after his junior year, he got a summer internship at Morgan Stanley, and then ended up deciding to start his own business. And though he had hoped to finish his college degree, he never went back. You know, I always had a little bit of a stubborn streak, and that was when I was trying to figure things out, try to try to think of ideas. Um, I think there was a lot of opportunity, a lot of problems to be solved, and uh, I was also looking for a co-founder at the time. So those are two critical ingredients, an idea and a co-founder. This is 1998. This is not 2015, when these kinds of conversations seem so common. Like, this was unusual in 1998 for a young person, it was just less common for a young person to just sort of say, I'm going to look into a tech startup and try to find a co-founder and just take some time to think about these things. Like, I, I, I would imagine your parents were nervous. I'd be nervous if my 20-year-old said to me, I'm not going to go back to college and I don't really know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to think about it. Yeah, I, they, they were understandably pretty upset, um, angry even, I'd say. And, you know, the irony is that they probably took a way more incredible personal risk moving from Korea to the United States and, you know, running these series of businesses, which uh, are commonly done, but but not easy in themselves and, and pretty high risk. But I do understand, obviously, the perspective at the time. Okay, so you you decide you want to start something up. And I think you you eventually landed on on e-commerce, right? Yeah, that was uh, not a groundbreaking thing at the time. Obviously, Amazon was around, et cetera, uh, a lot of e-commerce startups. But, you know, settled on this idea of making e-commerce a lot more seamless and, and frictionless and came up with this idea of a electronic wallet that would automatically hmm. make purchases for you. Uh, it could work with a lot of different e-commerce sites. And, you know, the goal there was that we would take a cut of, of every transaction. Right. And what was the company called? Uh, that was interesting. We we originally named it Kapoof. That was how it was incorporated. Yeah. Uh, until a lot of people said, you know, that might not be the best name for a company. Sounds like, you know, we, we called it Kapoof because it sounded like magic, et cetera, Kapoof. Right. Uh, things were done. You know, your transaction was completed. It sounds like Kapoof, Kapoof, your money is gone. Yeah, You've exactly. You have no more money. So, <laughs> exactly. Time of crazy names like Yahoo, et cetera. But uh, yep. We decided to change our name at some point, and we changed it to uh, Epicy, which was Swahili for fast. Hmm. And so that was the that was the ultimate name of the company. And and you guys were actually able to raise uh, a fair amount of money, right? Uh, we did. We ended up raising uh, a few million dollars from wow. some individuals and some from uh, some venture capital firms as well. And. We hired some people. We found a cool uh, renovated firehouse. So that was nice. Uh, really, uh, really nice. amazing place to, to hang out <laughs> in for many, many, many hours of the day. Uh, and we hired up to, uh, it was close to about 30 people. Wow. One super important thing that happened there was you met Eric Friedman, right? The guy that you would eventually launch Fitbit with. Uh, I did. And, you know, that's probably one of the more fortunate turns in my life, Eric. We, we didn't know each other at all before before the company, Epicy. He was actually just graduating from Yale uh, in computer science. And I interviewed him. 
I, I liked him a lot, and he ended up ultimately becoming the first employee at the company. Okay, so you hire Eric, and I think the company lasted like 18 months or, or a little less than two years? Yeah, yeah, about, a, about two years, and a lot of ups and downs during that period. And, you know, if I had to think back, I would attribute two-thirds of, of the challenges and problems we faced as a business to, to myself, um, huh. uh, just because I had never managed people. I, I didn't really know how, how to run a business, even if it was only the technology side. And, you know, at some point, the dot-com crash happened. Yeah. And all of our potential customers, the whole industry, the whole economy started taking a downturn. So this company sort of sputters out in 2001. Um, And when that happened, were you, did you think, okay, I should go back to college now and finish my degree? Or I got to start something else? where, Where was your head at that point? Well, it was a really challenging personal time for me, you know, at Towards the end of the company, we obviously had to lay off um, most of the company and trying to do it in a way that was, you know, compassionate, um, was really, really difficult. I don't think the thought of entering school or going back to school popped back into my head at all. Hmm. And, and I don't know why. I think it was because despite this, this very emotional failure, I knew this was what I wanted to do. I had a firm conviction about that. And so I, I, I knew I wasn't going to go back. So what'd you do? Uh, so we all ended up working at the same place, actually. Um, it was a company, a pretty large company called Dun & Bradstreet at the time. Uh, very stable company. And we were all pretty fortunate to be able to find work there as engineers. So uh, daytime working at Dun & Bradstreet and then what, at night? Sitting around? Just uh, brainstorming, kind of- yeah. It was, you know, we go into work during the daytime. And then we'd, we'd come home in the evenings, code different things, try different things out. You know, so it was a pretty intense work. I think in terms of the numbers of hours, I don't think anything changed from our first startup to, to trying to figure this, this next one out. And before too long, you decide to, to do another startup, this time um, with Eric Friedman from your previous company, and then another guy named Gokhan Kutlu. Um, I think this was, what, 2003, 2004? Yeah, 2000. This was about 2002, actually. Okay, and this time the startup was like a, a photo editing kind of platform, like sharing platform. What, what was it called? Well, the company's name at the time was called Haypix, and the product itself was called Electric Shoebox because, you know, a lot of people put their old photos in shoeboxes, and this was just going to be a digital. Yes, I still uh, have them in shoeboxes. You digitize them, yeah. probably. Um, I should, I know. Yeah, and so, you know, Electric Shoebox is just going to be a digital version of your shoebox. And, and what could you do? Well, their digital cameras were, were coming about back then. It still wasn't easy to, to connect them, upload photos. Like, it was getting yeah. easier, but um, nowhere near what it is today, obviously. Uh, so the whole idea of Electric Shoebox was to make the whole process of getting photos off your camera a lot easier. And more importantly, we wanted to make the process of sharing these photos with your friends and family a lot easier. So did you raise money for, for the product, for the electric shoebox? We did. We ended up raising money primarily from one of my friends from middle school, who was a mutual fund manager in Boston. And so he put in a bit of money, not a lot. Uh, I think about, at least for him, it was about 100000 And uh, we had a bunch of savings ourselves uh, that, that we were going to use. And in anticipation, I also opened up uh, a few more credit cards as well. And it was just really the three of you, like, sitting at your computers and just tapping the keys, like, all night? You you pretty much nailed it. I I mean, all we did was uh, we would wake up in the morning, walk over to the third bedroom, and just start typing away. For 12 hours, we'd take meal breaks. Uh, I remember... um, Eric did a lot of cooking, so we'd eat our dinners uh, on some TV stands watching TV. That was a a good break for us, watching Seinfeld, and then uh, go to bed, and then repeat it the following day. All right, so you come up with this product, and by the way, how are you going to make money off of this thing? This is a free (laughs) service, a free... (laughs) How are you going to pay for it? It was, um, I guess what you call it, it would be called freemium software. So it would be free for a period of time. And then the trial period would end, and then you'd have to submit your credit card information to continue using the software. 
Yeah. Got it. Okay. And so our, our primary goal was making sure that a lot of people knew about the software. So we we put it on shareware sites, et cetera. And then we spent a lot of time debating, you know, should we send out a press release? And I, I remember it was a huge debate because sending out a press release was going to be about $300. And uh, hmm. that was a... That was a <laughs> That was the level of expense that required a vigorous yeah. debate at the time. Yeah. Uh, so we said, you know what, without getting the product known, you know, how are we going to be successful? So uh, we, we wrote up a press release and uh, we, we put it out. And actually, it was probably the most pivotal decision we ever made in, in that company's history. Yeah. Because? The first email came in a few hours later. I think the second one came in a day later. But we got two emails, one from uh, CNET which is a huge digital publishing company. And then we got another email from Yahoo saying, hey, we, we just heard about this launch of this, this software product. And you know we'd like to talk to you guys more about it. Wow. Exactly. This is coming from their corporate development arms, which typically you know, deals with uh, M&A, with, with buying, yep. buying, buying companies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're like, whoa, this is magic. How, how did this happen? 2005 it gets purchased by CNET. They make an offer to buy this company, buy this product from you guys, and you sell it to CNET. Was that, uh, was that life-changing money? Did that mean that you never had to work again? Uh, it, was, um, it was definitely a good acquisition for, for all of us at the time. Uh, you know, remember, you were three guys working out of our apartments. I was, at the time, about $40,000 in credit card debt as well. Uh, so we were we were down to some desperate times, and we were negotiating numbers. And they threw out a number, which was uh, you know their first offer was uh, four million. And we're wow. like, whoa, that's yeah. that's amazing! Like, God, I can't believe we built something that's that's yeah. worth this much at the time. We were just stunned. And then we quickly got to well, okay, how do we negotiate something better? <laughs> you sell your company to CNET in 2005, and you've got some money in your pocket, and, um, and you moved to San Francisco to work for CNET. Um, and did you enjoy it? I mean, it, I mean, it was probably like a huge company at this point, right? It, it was a huge company, but I think the moment, at least for me, that I moved to San Francisco, I instantly fell in love with the city. And CNET, even though it was a larger company, I actually found it to be an amazing time. I, I learned a lot. You know, I got some management training. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up managing a, a small team of people, uh, learned a lot about how technology scales to millions and millions of users, how you market products. So I, I really enjoyed my, my experience there. I think it was pretty formative. So why did you leave CNET? So we left CNET just because of, I guess you could, you could call it a bolt of lightning in some ways. Uh, it was December of 2006, and Nintendo had just announced the Nintendo Wii. And I remember coming home, putting it together, and at the time, Nintendo had come up with this really innovative control system uh, using motion sensors, accelerometers, to serve as inputs into a game. And after using it, especially in in, Wii Fit, which was a sports game, I thought, wow, this this is incredible. This is amazing. This is magical. Like... You can use sensors in this way. Uh, you can use it to bring people together. And, and particularly for Wii Fit, it was a way of, of getting people active, of, of getting them moving together. And I was just blown away by this whole idea, really excited about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And after some time of, of playing Wii Fit and the Wii and a lot of other games, I thought, you know, this is great. It's, it's in my living room. But what if I want to take this outside hmm. of the living room? And I kept thinking about that idea. like, How do you take the Wii Fit outside? Outside, exactly. And wow. So I, I couldn't let it go. And I ultimately ended up calling up Eric. And we, we started talking about this idea for, for hours and hours. And, and we couldn't stop talking about it. It's like, how do we capture this magic and, and make it more portable? How do we give it to people 24-7? And that was really the genesis of... Fitbit. So the technology, for, I mean, pedometers have been around forever, right? Um, w- was that your sort of where your head was was going or thinking, okay, maybe we just 
create like an electronic pedometer. But I think even electronic pedometers were around in 2007, right? Yeah, pedometers were definitely around back then. Actually, they'd been around for probably 100 years. One of the things, though, is that they weren't something that people would want to use or to wear. Yeah. They were very big. They were pretty ugly. They looked like medical devices. Um, a lot of senior citizens wore, like, used them. Yeah, they weren't a very aspirational right. device. So you know, it wasn't something that people were excited to use. And right. so I think that's why that whole category of device just never really had any innovation. And there were also much higher-end devices. You could buy much fancier running watches, like mm-hmm. GPS watches, et cetera. But those are really expensive for people. They were $300, $400 at the time. Hmm. So you you had this idea, um, and that means you had to raise money. Um, and this is going to be the third time now that you've had to do that for a business. And I think I, I read that you raised like $400,000 to launch this. And... Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know a lot about hardware, but that doesn't seem like it was going to take you very far in, in like building a physical product. As we quickly found out, yes, we had grossly underestimated the cost of, of taking this to market. Well, and and what, what did that initial amount of money, how far did that get you into actually conceiving of what this product was going to be? It got us to a prototype, um, write some rudimentary software. Hmm. Get some industrial design concepts done and some models. And what did the prototype look like? Was it? Did it look like a Fitbit? It looked absolutely nothing like a Fitbit. So there, <laughs> there are two things. There was a actual somewhat working prototype, and then there was an industrial design model, which was a piece of plastic, plastic and metal that right. that okay. was supposed to look like the ultimate product. And so that yeah. actually looked really, really nice. But it didn't work. No, it was, it was just totally finish. non-functional. And we'd always have to yeah. tell people before showing, this right. this, is, this doesn't work here. Okay. Because <laughs> they get all excited looking at the model. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, 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 that doesn't work. The thing that actually worked looked like something that came out of, you know, a garage, literally. What did it, what, what did it look like? It was, you know, rectangular circuit board, a little bit smaller than your palm. Okay. And it had a motion sensor. It had a radio. It had a microcontroller, which was the brains of the product. Yep. And it had a rudimentary case, which was a balsa wood box. Wow. So you would take to investors a circuit board and a balsa wood box as your prototype? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was the prototype. And actually, that was what we had demoed when we first announced the company. That was the prototype that was actually being used at the announcement. Wow. How did you even get it to that point? Like, because you guys are both software engineers. How did you develop a, a physical product that even even a sort of such sort of a crude prototype could track movement? Did you have other people help you do that? You know, that was our big task was to find the right people who could help us. So um, I knew the founder of a really great industrial design firm in San Francisco called New Deal Design. Um, his name's Gadi Amit. And then on the algorithm side, because it was going to take a lot of sophisticated algorithms to f- translate this motion data to actual data that users would be able to understand, I ended up asking my best friend from college, Ed, because he was in grad school at Harvard at the time. And he mm-hmm. said, wait, I, I think I might know somebody. And it ended up being his teaching fellow. His, his name was Shelton. And we, we talked and was like, wow, uh, this guy's super smart. We need to get him working on our algorithms. Yeah. So he, he ended up working on the side while doing his PhD, helping us out with a, a lot of the software. So, I mean, you leave CNET in 2007, and you've got 400,000 to come up with a prototype. That, that quickly, you run out of that. So it's 2008, and you're trying to raise money. And how much did, how much did you raise? Uh, I think our first round was about $2 million. Which was not going to take you that far if you wanted to develop a physical product that was super sophisticated, a piece of hardware. We thought we could do it. Um, We thought we knew a little bit more about the hardware business. We put together another business plan budget. You know, it was it was actually a pretty challenging time to raise money as well because oh, the financial crisis. Yeah, exactly. It was the fall of two thousand eight when we were trying to raise raise money. Yeah, and you know, one of the I guess the good and bad things about VCs is the good thing about VCs, they're incredibly healthy people. They're super fit. But it also made it difficult for a lot of them to understand the value of the product because what we were trying to do was it wasn't a product meant for super athletic people. It was really meant to help 
Normal people become more active, become healthier, etc. And it was hard for a lot of them to grasp why that was valuable. They'd ask, well, did it do X or did it do Y and did it do Z? And we'd say, no, it, it doesn't do any of that. And so it was very difficult for a lot of these super fit VCs to understand the value of the product, even though a lot of them claim they don't try to put their own bias on these products. It's naturally human to, to do that. And did you know right away that this was going to be, I mean, now their Fitbits are, are, are watches mainly, right? That their wrists are on your wrist. But at that time, you were thinking that this was just going to be something you would clip to your, your clothing? Yeah, something to clip to your clothing for men. And then what we found out in talking to a lot of women was that they wanted to tuck it away somewhere hidden. They didn't want people right. to see it. And we said, okay, where would you want to put it? and said, well, a lot of our pants don't have pockets, so it can't be in our pocket. And so the preferred place was actually on their bra. Right. Uh, so a lot of the physical design that we had to think about in the early days was how to come up with a product that would be very slim, slender, and clip to people's bras. And hidden. And hidden, and clip the bras pretty easily. And by the way, how did you come up with the name Fitbit? It, that was a, you know, it's never easy to name a company, and it's even more challenging just because of domain names, right? That's some. That's typically a lot of the limiting factor yeah. in, in naming a great company. And so we would spend hours and hours and days just going through different permutations of names some and some awful ones as well. Like at some point we got onto a, a fruit theme. So we were thinking like Fitberry or Berry Fit or Fitcado or, you know, just some, just some really awful names. <laughs> And you the know when the fitcado, <laughs> yes, history might have turned out a lot, lot differently, for sure. Uh, so I was just taking a nap in my office one afternoon. I think I was actually napping on the rug because I was so tired. And I woke up, and it just hit me. It was it was Fitbit. <laughs> and the next challenge was actually the domain name. The domain name was not available, and it was owned by this guy in Russia. And we're like, oh my God, how are we going to get this domain name? Um, we'll, just, we'll just email the guy and see what happens. And he said, well, how much are you willing to offer? And I said, oh God, I, I don't know. How about like a thousand bucks? And he's like, ooh, how about 10,000? And I said, oh, I don't know. That, that sounds like a lot. How about 2,000? And he's like, oh, okay, 2,000, <laughs> deal. I, I think it was literally like two or three emails that we sent back and forth in this negotiation. Probably the best $2,000 you ever spent in your life, except for the 300 you spent on the press release a yeah, couple years yeah, earlier. Yeah, definitely, a, <laughs> definitely a good return. You've probably spent many millions of dollars on other things in your life that were not as good of a deal as that $2,000. Yeah, it's tens of thousands on cons you know naming consultants and focus groups and sure. trademark searches and, and all of that. So it's it's kind of funny. Hey, as they say, Small company, small problems. Big company, big problems. Exactly. So, where do you begin? I mean, you got to make it. You got to find a factory. You got to find um, designers. Uh, what do you? Where do you go? Uh, the, very good, very good question. So, um, we obviously had zero connections. The challenge, though, was not actually the connections to the manufacturers, but finding a manufacturer who we could actually convince to build this product because we didn't have a background in hardware. Yeah. And so would they actually want to work with us? That was the, the biggest concern at the time. So how did you find them? Uh, we went out to China. We, we went out to Singapore. And we were never going to be able to get the Foxconn's. The you world. had to go to a smaller place. We had to go to a smaller place who'd be more nimble, more flexible, who'd, who'd want to take a financial risk. And we finally found a, a great manufacturer based in Singapore called Racer Technologies. And, and the good thing is actually it was the best of all worlds. The headquarters was in Singapore. Most of the management team and the engineering staff was in Singapore. But they had manufacturing facilities that were in Indonesia. So the labor there was going to be lower cost than in yeah. Singapore. All right. So, so 2008, you've got the name Fitbit. You go to TechCrunch to present, to kind of like, you know, unveil this product. And what, what was the product that you were offering? You said, all right, we're, we've got this thing called the Fitbit, and it does this. What did, you, what did you say it did at that point? So our pitch to the crowd at TechCrunch and ultimately to our consumers was that it was a product that would track your steps, distance, calories, and how much you slept, and would answer some basic questions about your health. 
Was I active enough today? Did I get enough hmm. sleep? What do I need to do to lose weight, uh, et cetera? And in, in one of the more important aspects was this idea of a community as well. Join other people who own Fitbits, your friends and family, and you could compete with each other. And it was all hmm. wireless. Like you didn't really have to do anything. All you'd have to do is wear this device, yeah. don't even think about it, and all this magic would happen. So that was the promise of, of Fitbit yeah. at the time. There was a lot of excitement there. But I'm wondering, like, were you nervous to do these presentations? Did you have to, like, prepare like crazy? Or or did you just find your ability to, like, be this person you had to be on stage when you got up there? Yeah, I think um, there was no other choice. So it was just something we had to do. And, you know, I think... Uh, you Are know, you common... better at it than Eric? Or is Eric better at it than you? I think we're both good in our, in our different ways. It just fell upon yeah. me. I don't even know how we decide you know, those things. But actually what was running through our minds was not what we were going to say and how we're going to say it, but whether the demo would actually work on stage. (laughs) Because again, it was, it was a little sketchy. It was um, still very early. It was, it was still in the, in the wooden box. And the balsa wood box. Balsa wood box phase. So we're just worried that the demo would just fail or crash. But it worked. That was, it worked. And actually, it did crash in the middle of the presentation because the whole demo was about me walking on stage. The device would be collecting stats. And at one point, I would turn to Eric and say, hey, Eric, why don't you refresh the page and show that all the stats have been uploaded magically through this wireless connection? And so the demo actually crashed while I was talking. And Eric was furiously trying to reboot his computer during this period. And I didn't even know anything about it. But ultimately, um, you know, the demo did work. And so to, to many people, it seemed like magic. Yeah. Literally, people started clapping. It was, yeah. it was really amazing. So originally, right before TechCrunch, uh, Eric and I, you know, we made just a verbal bet. Hey, you know, how many pre-orders are we going to get after this conference and we announce and make the company public? And, you know, I think Eric said, oh, I think we'll get like five pre-orders. So it's like the device isn't even available. People are going to have to yeah. give us your credit card information. And I said, no, oh, you know what? I'm not as pessimistic. I think there's going to be like 10, 15, 20 and so we got off stage, and by the end of the day, we had about 2,000 pre-orders. Wow. When we come back in just a moment, James and Eric have a prototype in a balsa wood box, and they don't exactly know how they are going to get from there to filling thousands of pre-orders. But a lot of people are expecting them in time for Christmas. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.com slash improvinglives. 3M Science, Applied to Life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2008, and James and his co-founder Eric Friedman show off their Fitbit prototype at TechCrunch, and it makes a huge splash. Problem is, they have no finished product. They haven't even figured out how they're going to make it. And pre-orders are pouring in. And they just kept coming in. It was crazy. We're like, oh my God, now we got to, it's not just dozens of these units we have to build. It's, it's now thousands and, and more and more every day. And so we were still thinking Christmas of that year that we were going to start shipping out units. And it rapidly became clear to us that we weren't going to make Christmas. And so we were thinking, okay, how do we keep all these people happy while we pull this off? So uh, this was before Kickstarter and, and you know Indiegogo yeah. and all that. So we kind of had to improvise. We're like, okay, why don't we just 
blog about the whole process and just be very open and transparent about it. So we started a blog and I, and I wrote maybe weekly updates on how things were going, challenges and delays that, that we're facing. And I was really surprised actually, um, you know, it, it worked. It made people understand what we were going through. Yeah. Uh, they were literally seeing the thing being made, the sausage being made behind the scenes. And I, I think that people that kept people really engaged throughout the process. So you have uh, basically a bunch of contractors and freelancers, and you guys are going back and forth to Asia, and you're, so you've got people working on the software to transmit the data to the web. You've got some people working on the hardware, presumably in Singapore, trying to shrink down the motherboard into something that is two inches by one half inch. And were you just constantly running into failures? Like you would think that, oh, here, here it is, and then like somebody would hit the hit the go button and then it would just fizzle out, it wouldn't work? Yeah, I can't even enumerate the number of um, challenges with the product that we had. And Go, go please, start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in some ways, a lot of people, I think, when you think about hardware, it's like, oh, I'll find a manufacturer in China. Yeah. I'll throw right. over no a design. They're just, they'll just run with it, you know. And, and then they'll you know, just give me the, send me the bill and then it's yeah, done. And they'll just crank out thousands, tens of thousands of this. But you know that's that's never and that works if it's a like a suitcase we've done away right so so it works if it's that thing if it's that thing or something that that's very similar to something that they've built before right well that's 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 a different story than this thing that this manufacturer never had built before so they would send you things and say yep we got it and then you would get it and it sucked it just didn't work yeah we wouldn't wait for them to send it i mean either myself or eric would be in Indonesia or Singapore at, at, at any given time. We'd, we'd trade off different weeks. And we were out there on the production lines pretty much inspecting every every part of the process. Uh, but were you convinced this thing was going to work or did you have doubt? I was, ab- I was absolutely convinced that it was going to happen. You had no doubts that this was... That this I, was I had no doubt was- because we were getting proof every day that this was something that was going to be big. And I think the first evidence of that was at TechCrunch, where we had 2,000 pre-orders, and we were getting pre-orders every day. I think by the summertime, we had we had about 25,000 pre-orders at $100 per unit. That's, that's a fair amount of revenue if we could ship these units. And how much was it going to cost you to make each unit? That was a very good question. We didn't know that. Hopefully under $100. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know you were selling them for a hundred, but you didn't know how much it was going to cost you. Uh, we had a we had a sense of the bill of materials. Um, I think we were trying to shoot for a gross margin of about fifty percent. So we're targeting, you know, the full cost of the product, including shipping, et cetera, being no more than fifty dollars. So that's what we're targeting. Which is a but lot. That's that's high. It's a high cost. It's a, it's a high cost, but um, you know that was a cost at which we felt we could sustain ourselves as a business. How did you and Eric um, manage your relationship and friendship? I mean, with the stress of this delay and inability to meet demand and all these, like, was there tension at all between the two of you, or are you guys totally on the same page? You know, I don't I don't think uh, there was that much tension. I mean, a lot of stress, but not, not tension. I think we trust in our ability to, you know, help each other out. And there were periods when either of us would be pretty down on the company Hmm. and the product. And luckily, we weren't down both at the same time. Uh, and, and that's why it helps, I think, to have a co-founder. So there were times where you were really down and, and he could, could give you a pep talk. And he yeah, exactly. And, and then I'd talk. wonder why he wasn't down. And, and there's some pretty dark times right before we shipped. And I remember we were months before we thought we could finally get the first unit off the production line. And I was sitting in my hotel room in Singapore, and I was I was testing out one of the prototype builds that that racer had produced, and the radio range was not good at all. It was supposed to have what, a range ten, 10 feet or fifteen. Well, feet? Well, that was the hope that it would have fifteen to twenty feet range, but the range was actually like two inches. Oh <laughs> God! Wait, so the antenna in the device had a two-inch range? <laughs> yeah, it, it would only work at two inches, and oh I'm God. thinking. We've got to ship this this holiday season. Like I've got tens of thousands of these people waiting. Oh God! And so I'm I'm just freaking out in my hotel room. Might as well room. just have a cord and just plug it in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's okay. like 
So I couldn't sleep that night, obviously, and I, I took the unit apart. Like I had a multimeter and I was measuring different voltages and currents. And what I realized was, huh, the cable for the display was kind of flexible and long enough that maybe it was actually drooping down and touching the antenna. And that was oh, causing creating issue. interference. Creating interference. And I could kind of see that when you put the whole thing together that it might droop down. And I thought, okay, uh, how do I create a shim that would prop the antenna up? So I went to the bathroom, grabbed some toilet paper, rolled a little bit of it in a ball and stuffed it between the antenna and the display cable. Yeah. Put the device back together and it started working. Like wow. the range was so great. It was, so you had to separate one wire from the antenna, and that was it, with toilet paper. With, like with a, toilet paper, yeah, that, that was wow. it. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I still couldn't sleep. So the next, as early as possible the following morning, I raced into our manufacturing and said, okay, I, I think I found a problem. But obviously, toilet paper is not a, a scalable, high-volume situation. So they went back and figured out how they could make this manufacturable. So they ended up uh, creating these little tiny die-cut pieces of rubber that they would glue onto the circuit board to keep the antenna away from the display cable. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. So that was basically was just inserting something in there, and then it, it worked. Yeah, um, it wasn't exactly duct tape, but that was the equivalent. It was pretty close. Duct tape. Wow. It was pretty close, yeah. All right. So you guys launched this product in Christmas of 2009, and it was a pretty successful product launch. Um, you had 25,000 orders and... Sounds like you're off to the races, but I, I I guess even like with this success, did you when you went out to raise money? This is 2010. Were investors more excited, or was it still a challenge to to get more investors in? It was still it was still a challenge, um, and at, at the time it wasn't you know okay. I guess you guys are having some success, like consumers are buying the product, etc. It's like and they congratulated us on that, right? But. They were very scared of hardware businesses. I think there had been a lot of really high-profile failures in the consumer electronics industry. And so it was very difficult for us to raise money. I remember you know, we had a, a spreadsheet of, of target VCs. I think there are 40 names that we put on that list. And literally, we went to number 40 before we were able to raise money. And just giving the same pitch again and again, answering the same questions. Same pitch, driving, you know, we're in San Francisco, driving down 101 to Sand Hill Road, constantly giving the same pitch to 40 VCs. Hmm. You know, f that's probably the one thing I, I didn't like about that whole time period was I hate <laughs> giving the same pitch over and over and hearing yeah. the same questions and same objections, et cetera. So that, that was not a, a, a fun or stimulating time for me. Yeah. All right. So eventually, the 40th investor does decide to give you some money. I think you raised about $8 million. And at this point, were you able to then have like a proper office and a, and a staff? Were you able to kind of begin to recruit real full-time engineers and developers and people like that? We were. We we did that after with the round that was right after our first two million dollar institutional round. Yeah. We hired a bunch of um, you know customer support personnel. I interviewed and hired our first you know head of sales. I you know interviewed and hired someone to finally run all of our manufacturing and operations, which was still a job that I was doing. Like I was still issuing all the POs wow. and managing the inventory. And I think we're really fortunate because the early management team that we hired in those days uh, pretty much made it up to and past our IPO, which right. I think rarely happens. It's so crazy to think about now, but I think early on, right, with, with the Fitbit, the idea was to be part of a bigger community. So, like, the data from your activity would be available. You would just go to a site and you could see and you could see everybody else's because the idea was we're all part of this together. But I think, right. like, early on, right, um, some, like, users were tracking, like, sex. And when you started to hear about these things, was your reaction like, oh, my God, I never even thought about this being like a privacy thing, I, I always thought that people would just want to share stuff. Yeah, I think um, we. This was still kind of the early days of of, of sharing sharing things yeah. like that, and I found that about it because I saw this tweet about someone going, "Hey, if you do this Google search, 
you'll see, because Google is indexing all our, all our public pages where people are logging things that people have made public, you could find out all the sexual activities that people are logging on Fitbit. And I saw that, I'm like, oh my God, this is not good. Yeah. So that ended up being the first real PR crisis for the company. And it was happening over the 4th of July weekend. So I had to call an emergency board oh, meeting. Man. You know, we had to scramble to delete all that stuff, turn everything private. Because the default setting initially when you go to Fitbit was it's, it's not private, it's open. Because yeah, the idea was of, it was going to be a big community of people trying to get fit. Yeah, I mean, we made a lot of things private by default. So we made sure that people's weight was private because right. we thought that would be sensitive. But we didn't think that, oh, people's activities, you know, there wasn't any harm in doing that. And we just didn't realize that people would, would start to and, log And just out. to be clear, like, people who logged sexual activity, this is not like a, a category that you offered up. It was just people were voluntarily deciding to just log that as one of their activities. Well, it was was a category, but it wasn't something that we had realized. So we we used this database from the government that was like thousands of different activities that people would do. Oh, I see. And so it was an option. Um, We just didn't think people would would log that. You were just naive about that. We were naive. We were like, okay, this is this government database of activities. It must be fine. Um, That was was quite a shock and and a wake-up call for us. So Fitbit for the first couple of years was a still a clip, mainly um, a clip. And then I think really 2011, you released the first product Christmas of 2009. You've got 2010. By 2011, I read your just business exploded like 5x growth from 2011, 2012. You went from $15 million in revenue to $76 million in revenue. What was going on? Was it just this self generating phenomenon? Like, were you surprised by it? Were you investing in marketing? Was it just unearned media, just people reporting on it? What was going on? I think the primary reason is, you know, because we had baked in this social element, this community element into it from the very beginning. It ended up being a very viral, very viral product. Um, So one family member would get it. And to really realize the potential, you know, the, the community aspect and the competitive aspect, you had to have someone else as well. So they'd either yeah. buy it for their spouse or their parents, and they would start competing. And then they'd buy it for their friends, and they'd try to get their friends to uh, buy the product. So it, so they could each see how many steps you were people. Because I remember this. I remember this at NPR. People were wearing Fitbits, and they were talking. And there was, I think there was even people were encouraged to get Fitbits. Exactly. So it was, it was very driven by word of mouth. And, and this viral spread was, um, was a huge driver of our growth in, in those days. Um, I think by, by 2013, you had some competitors coming in. The Nike, um, Nike was making one, and, and Jawbone was making one. And I mean, I remember going to the TED conference in 2013, and getting a jawbone in my gift bag. Um, were you worried about the competition at that point or, 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 or not really? Yeah, at that time, I think people were looking at the success and you know, there was even a name coined for the whole category, which is quantified self, right? How do I use sensors, et cetera, to measure everything that I'm doing in my entire life? And so that attracted a lot of competition, as you said. Um, and I'd have to say the competitive aspect was, was definitely worrying at the time, uh, especially with Nike and, and Jawbone. Yeah, because they're so huge. They were huge. I mean, Nike, obviously, it's a multi-billion dollar yeah. multinational company uh, with a lot of media dollars. I remember when they announced the fuel ban, you know, they had all these celebrity athletes at the announcement, yeah. and we're like, oh, God, that's insane. And yet, by 2014, you had 67% of the activity tracking marketplace, right? I mean, Fitbit was just totally dominating the marketplace, I mean, were you and, and Eric doing like like victory laps and high fiving each other and thinking back to all those like all those doubters? Uh, I mean, what was going on? I think we're still pretty. I, I don't know if scared's the right word. I think still very very cautious. Um, you know, nothing was was guaranteed. There was a lot of competition that was emerging. Uh, we still had a lot of internal challenges in the business. You know, scaling production scaling the company, et cetera. So again, a lot of fires for us to be solving on a day-to-day basis. And I remember occasionally we'd always check in and say, hey, um, when do you think we'll know like this is, 
this, we're going to make it. Yeah. And we'd say, I think we'll know in six months. And we kept、yeah. saying that every, <laughs> every six months. So it was pretty much an, an ongoing thing,、um, you know, pretty much up to the IPO. 2015 was a huge turning point for you in, in many ways.、Um, you go public, I think your market cap, I read at a certain point, reached $10 billion. That year, 2015, Apple, the Apple Watch is released and they stop selling Fitbit in their stores. At the time, you were quoted as saying, you know, I don't really, I'm not really worried about this because it's a huge market, it's a $200 billion market. You know, the Apple Watch is just crammed with a bunch of stuff, or smartwatches are crammed with a bunch of stuff, and what we're doing is something simpler. Was that what you were saying publicly? Because, I don't know, did you, you felt like you should be saying that, or did you really think that was true? That the, that the Apple Watch wouldn't actually have much of an impact? You know, we were definitely concerned with Apple. I mean, this was the preeminent technology and especially hardware company at the time with an amazing brand. We had faced off Philips and Nike and Jawbone,、yeah. uh, which were, you know, in their rights, very big competitors, especially Nike. We did feel very strongly that our product had very clear advantages. It was a simpler product.、Um, if you looked at the Apple Watch that was announced at that time, I think everyone will admit, maybe even Apple, that it was a product that didn't quite know what it was supposed to be used for. So, with the launch of the first Apple Watch, I don't really think that that had an actual impact on the trajectory of the business.、Um, it wasn't the product that it would later, later become, and the industry wasn't where it would eventually evolve either. I mean, but eventually the industry did change, right? I mean, I mean, Apple Watch got really popular. I think, like, by 2016,、um, Fitbit's stock had dropped by like 75% over the course of, of a year.、Um, I mean, you and Eric were running a publicly traded company, and the stock was just like tumbling. So, what did you think? I mean, I, I can't imagine that was pleasant for you. No, it was definitely a stressful. Stressful period. And you, you could argue, well, we, maybe we shouldn't have been, been valued at $10 billion in the first place.、Uh, and I think in a lot of times it's a question of you know, perception, right? If, if we had、right. never hit that $10 billion and we had steadily grown into you know, the $2 billion,、uh, I think people's perceptions and you know, just psychology about the whole situation would have been different than going to $10 and, and falling to $2. Yeah. And it was a very You know, challenging period because as a private company, despite challenges, your valuation doesn't change very often. It only changes when you raise money, which could happen once a year, once every two years.、Right. So if you hit a bump in the road, your employees don't really feel it. We had a product recall where if we had been a public company, our valuation would have plummeted immediately. But at the time, we we're private. So we just told the employees, hey, look, this is the challenge, it's pretty serious. But here are the steps that we're going to take to get through it. And everyone kind of rallied together. But when you're being measured every day in real time by the stock price, by、yeah. the stock price uh, you're not really given a lot of breathing room to, to try to fix things. Even though you were introducing new products, revenue was declining every year from the time you went public. And I read an article about something that you did in 2017, and I'm, I'm really just curious to get your take on it because I actually think it's really courageous, but, but also probably super stressful and difficult, which is you asked your employees to submit a, an evaluation of the company and of you, and,、uh, and then you sat in front of them to hear the results of the, this evaluation, and it wasn't good. You, had a, you even had some employees who wrote letters to the board asking that you be removed as CEO.、Um, I can't imagine that was easy for you to hear.、Uh, you know, I don't know if I heard that particular feedback directly, but clearly the survey results were, were not great.、Um, you know, I, I kind of half jokingly think, you know, probably used to hearing very critical feedback because of my parents. I don't think there was a moment where they were truly happy. With,、uh, with anything that I did. I remember even、uh, when I took the SATs and I got my score back, it was, it was a pretty good score, but my dad、mm-hmm. just honed in 
on clearly the areas that that had not done well. So I don't think I have a huge ego. I mean, I do have an ego. I think it's human to have one. Sure. But um, my primary focus was how do I how do I get things back on track? You had there was a quote from somebody in an, in an article. It's an anonymous quote. It said, you know, we were focused on. Um, at a certain point, we were focused on the right things. We had the ability and have the ability to know a lot about our users, which you do. But our users don't want to be told what they did. In other words, they don't want to be told, hey, you exercised, you did 10 steps today. They want to be told what to do, like how to get better. So, and the quote was, this was the greatest missed opportunity. Um, I know you've you've made a pivot since then, but was that a, a fair assessment at the, at the time in 2017 that... You were just you were too focused on telling people what they've accomplished rather than telling them what they need to do. Yeah, I think there are ultimately kind of two big things that were driving the headwinds in the business. First of all, I think we were really behind in launching a competitive smartwatch at the time. Like people were competitive to to uh, that to that competitive Apple to Apple. Yeah, yeah. It was clear that the industry that consumers were moving to that category, and we were seeing that in our sales. So. Uh, in a peer, in a very short period of time, our tracker business uh, fell by eight hundred million dollars in in revenue. And you know, at the time, at our peak, we were doing about two point one billion wow. in revenue. So we had an eight hundred million dollar hole. Uh, and we finally launched our smartwatch, but it was only sufficient to fill that hole very barely. You know, we we hadn't we hadn't transformed our software into giving people guidance. In advice, and it also ties to uh, our failure at the time to quickly diversify a revenue stream beyond just hardware to a services business, like a subscription. Exactly. Yeah. Um, We were so focused on growing our hardware business because that was what was bringing in the money. That was what the retailers wanted, etc. And you know, one of the mistakes I made was not setting up enough time, enough focus to building this subscription part of the business that actually answered those pivotal questions for, for our users. As many, many companies find themselves, you know, successful companies that have a successful legacy product, it's crazy talking about a, a legacy product for your company, which is only 10 years old um, or 12 years old, but, but you know, the, you could argue that the Fitbit product is your legacy product, right? And that as, as any company with a legacy product realizes they've got to make a pivot. Like for American Express, it was traveler's checks for 100 years, right? <laughs> you know, that's how they made their money. Uh, and they had to pivot into other things, travel services, credit cards, and so on. Um, it sounds like in 2019, you really made a pivot into thinking about Fitbit, not as a hardware company that makes like a tracker watch or device, right? Smartwatch, but um, a company that really is about healthcare and is designed to kind of pivot into more into healthcare data and analysis. Is that fair? Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I think we, we stopped thinking of ourselves as a device company and, and more of as a behavior change company because that's effectively what people were buying our products and services to do right. was to change their behavior in a really positive way. And not only you know individual people, but companies as well. Companies who in the U.S. especially bear the direct costs of the health care of, of their employees. So we started thinking about ourselves as a behavior change company and you know, figuring out what are the products and services that, that really deliver that both to, to people and to businesses. So we get to the end of last year where Google announces that they were going to buy Fitbit. $2.1 billion dollars. Um, we should mention that at the time of this recording, it hasn't closed yet. Um, to me, it makes perfect sense. If I'm you or Eric, I would have done it. I would have said $2.1 billion. That's a very, that's great. That's a great outcome because now with Google, we've got access to their their dollars and their research um, labs and all the, you know, the, the people who work there and the analytics and our ability to really go to the next level. Um, why did it make sense for, for from your perspective to to sell to Google? Yeah, that's a very complicated and kind of emotionally fraught question. But um, last year, our 
board met, and it was pretty clear to everybody that we had a lot of challenges in the business. Um, we weren't profitable. There was a lot of competition out there uh, from the likes of Apple, from Samsung, um, some emerging Chinese competitors. But there was a lot of just great things going on in the company. Like I was so excited about our product roadmap, about something you know, things that were in our pipeline, all the advanced research that we're doing around health and sensors. Like I would look at our product roadmap every day and just you know come away super excited about that, and and then also be. You know, confronted with a lot of the business challenges as well, and for me, most importantly,、um, it was about a legacy, and I wanted the Fitbit brand and and what we did to continue onwards for a very, very long time, and we just had to figure out the best way to do it, whether it was as an independent company or or within a larger company. That was really what was most important. I I I imagine that there are some details you can't talk about for for obvious reasons, but.、Um, As of this recording, we're we're talking in in mid-April. There is a hold on the Google acquisition. The, the Department of Justice is doing a an investigation because there's some interest groups who have said, "Hey, you know, we don't think that Google should have access to all this data that Fitbit Fitbit has 28 million users. There's this incredible trove of health data.、Um, is that causing you stress right now that that there is this this Justice Department holdup on the acquisition?" No, it, and it's because、um, you know sometimes the press does like to sensationalize things, but the process that we're undergoing right now、um, with the Department of Justice and also with the EU and, and some other countries around the world is pretty normal for acquisitions of the size.、Mm. In fact, it's required.、Uh, really, you know, the whole review is about the anti-competitive element and especially around the wearable market share. So that's just something that. We have to convince regulators that you know this doesn't reduce competition in the marketplace. As far as you know, the situation now with the the lockdowns and and the pandemic does not have any impact on Google's interest or commitment to making this happen. No, I think everyone's thinking towards the long term. Fingers crossed is that we do find ourselves through this COVID nineteen situation, and that there is life beyond that. Maybe it comes back slowly, but. You know, I think everyone is thinking, what does this whole category look like in time span of years out? And I think what one of the things that COVID nineteen has shown is that, especially if you look at healthcare, this idea of remote healthcare, remote monitoring, people people healthy outside、yeah. of a hospital setting、yeah. is actually really important. Super! It's it's going to totally change medicine. I've had I've had a, a video call with my doctor just for a quick question. You know, it's actually super convenient. Exactly, and if if during these telemedicine visits, if they have a snapshot and summary of what you've been up to and what your health has been outside of that visit, and almost be predictive in that way, I mean, I think that's、yeah. that can be really groundbreaking in terms of the way that's being practiced in the way medicine gets practiced.、Mm-hmm. And this whole time period is merely accelerating that transition. When you think about all of the the things that that you Have done、um, professionally and and your successes and you made a lot of money. I mean, you're extremely wealthy. You're wealthier than your parents could have ever imagined you would be or they would be. And they took a huge risk to come to the U.S. and add all these little mom and pop stores.、Um, how how much of that do you think is because of your intelligence and and skill? And how much do you attribute to luck? Yeah, you know, that's always a, a, a tricky <laughs> tricky question to answer. You know, I think very fortunate to have grown up with my parents.、Um, just having seen them persevere through life, you know, you get the realization that nothing really comes easy. That it, it does take a lot of, you know, just grinding away at things that at the time seem seem kind of unpleasant. So I think those are good traits, and very fortunate to to have parents like that who sacrificed a lot to put me in some in great schools over time, even though they. They started from some humble beginnings, so, but also have learned a lot of ways. Gotten some lucky breaks where things have could have gone the wrong way, very, very quickly. You know, ultimately, I attribute it to a, a little bit of, little bit of all of that. I think it's、um, not fair to say that everything is luck, because then I think you start to discount the actual. Things, actions that you can take on your own to affect the future, and that's really important. 
That's James Park, co-founder of Fitbit. And here's a number for you. 34,642,772. That is how many steps James has tracked since he first put on that balsa wood Fitbit prototype, at least as of this recording. That's about 15,430 miles or 24,832 kilometers. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. This episode was produced by James Delahousie with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Sarah Saracen, Candace Lim, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Jobs Ohio. Ohio's business-friendly climate and people-friendly quality of life make it an ideal environment for new and growing businesses to thrive. Visit ohioisforleaders.com to learn more. The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast.